Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. All right, Joe. So in the post-World War II era, presidents have had to deal with pandemics as a part of their job. The Eisenhower administration fast-tracked the polio vaccine. Gerald Ford dealt with swine flu. Ronald Reagan's legacy is marred by his administration's inaction on AIDS in the 1980s. And of course, President Obama confronted the global threat of Ebola. And now we have the coronavirus. Joe, talk a little bit about the presidency and pandemics. Yeah, it's a very difficult issue, maybe one of the most difficult a president can face, because you have to balance a really conflicting interests. You have public health on one side. These are very serious issues. Uh, you need to balance the need for people to understand what the threat is, understand the steps they can take to address the threat, but also not overreact and, and panic. On the other side, you've got the economic considerations. We've already seen, uh, particularly in Asia, uh, what the effect of a major pandemic breaking out in China can do. We have closed down the, the, the lanes of trade with China. I expect that will happen with other countries. And it has a real impact because you have a multi-tiered um, impact on the economy. One is confidence. And when confidence goes away, so do investors. Uh, and that's a vicious uh, cycle. And the other is we live in a world of just-in-time inventory where we have gotten so much more productive than we were 40 or 50 years ago because everything comes together at the last minute in very complicated supply chains. So the impact on the economy of what may seem like something small can have a huge impact. So they are inherently difficult for any government. You know, you saw in the most recent one, in 2014, uh, President Obama took very aggressive steps to deal with this. He was widely criticized, including by Donald Trump in a tweet, for appointing our friend, uh, the friend of uh, the podcast, Ron Klain, who's been on several times, as his Ebola czar. Now, Ron is not a doctor. He's not a scientist. Um, uh, but he's someone who understands the mechanics and the levers of government. And Obama correctly nailed down the biggest need in government, which was to making the interagency process work, making sure that HHS and CDC were working together, making sure that the Labor Department was involved, and really pushing out the, the best people to get the best result. And Ron was perfect for that. He understands government inside and out. And by all accounts, uh, our response in 2014 was first class and superb. So what you have to do then is compare that to where we are now. The last thing I'd say uh, on Obama, and I think the same is true if you, you reference um, Eisenhower in the 50s and uh, uh, Gerald Ford in the 70s, is the government didn't try to put their thumb on the scale one side or the other. They saw it as a balance, uh, and they were upfront or as upfront as they thought they could be with the American public. 
we have kind of a perfect storm now at the White House. First off, this is something that cries out for a robust interagency response. There is no interagency process at the White House. The White House is run by the president and his Twitter account, and the government uh, is reflective of that. You don't have close coordination between the agencies. You don't have a rigorous process that can take a very complicated issue, break it down, and come up with alternatives and solutions. Plus, you have an enormous credibility problem with this president. The Washington Post has him at 16,000-plus lies or distortions, which is, take a step back, and that's just an outrageous concept to consider that the president lies on a regular basis. Well, this is a time where you need credibility, where you need everyone to say, okay, this isn't about politics. This isn't about trying to take advantage of the Democrats or take advantage of the Republicans. It's about the American interest and public health. Well, you're getting just the opposite from this administration. The press conference last week was really frightening, I I think. You had Dr. Anthony Fauci, you had people from the CDC, and you had the president and the vice president and the HHS uh, secretary Azar, and you saw a tale of two stories. Uh, The experts told the truth. They said that this was inevitable. We are going to have to face this pandemic. You shouldn't panic. We have a lot of things in the works, uh, but it's not going away. The president, on the other hand, kept finding ways as inarticulate as he is to say, there's nothing to worry about. We've got this solved. Uh, The vice president did his normal job of telling everyone, I don't really know what I'm talking about, but the president's great. Uh, And the same with his HHS secretary. So the lack of credibility is uh, something that's going to harm the president and harm the process. No matter how smart Dr. Fauci and his scientists are on trying to uh, create a vaccine, it's undermined when the president says it's imminent that we're going to have one. We're not going to have one for a year. Any scientist will tell you that. No matter how much the vice president goes out and talks about the efforts, people are not going to believe it. And left to the public and any public, this is just not the United States, it's around the world, people left to their own devices, left to make up their own mind on conflicting information, will almost always panic. When somebody says there's going to be six inches of snow in Washington, D.C., why everyone cleans off the shelves of uh, milk, whether there is going to be snow or not. This obviously is much more more serious. The last point is, and, and, and I'm really glad we had Doug Sosnick on the podcast, and if people haven't heard that, the one from last week, they should go back and listen to one point in particular. The president knows full well, based on our history of presidential politics, that it's around two or three months from now that the public locks in on where they think the economy is, the end of the second quarter. I, I will always remember watching George Bush and running against Bill Clinton. Um, Clinton was killing him on the economy. Well, the third quarter of 1992, the economy grew almost 4%. But the die was cast at that point. The public said, I don't like, I have no confidence in the economy. I don't think it's growing. I don't think I'm doing better. I'm going to throw the bum out. Trump knows that this is coming at the worst possible time for him. The stock market falling, growth will inevitably slow, and it will not slow from a 4% rate. It will slow from a 2% rate. And he's doing everything he can to talk up the economy, to try to talk up the stock market by minimizing the risk and minimizing it in a very dishonest way. And the market is having none of it. The president's press conference last week 
was designed to put a floor on the stock market. Well, it did just the opposite the day after the press conference. And that goes to all of these things I'm talking about. Someone said to me yesterday, this is the president's mission accomplished when he's saying that it's over before it's over. And I said, no, not really. This is the president's Katrina, where he is trying to talk down a problem that we can all see. All you have to do is turn on the news. And you and once you've lost that credibility, you allow outside forces, non-experts to color it. And I think the president is in for a very rough both policy process and political ride over the next few months. All right, Joe, I know you're busy and don't have time to read or in some cases reread all the books you'd like. And you just discovered an incredible new app and it's called Blinkist. Yeah, Katie, Blinkist is quickly becoming one of the most important apps on my phone. Blinkist is really unique and it works on your phone, your tablet or your web browser. Blinkist takes need-to-know information, the key takeaways from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. If you read a lot, but still don't get to have time to get to everything you want, Blinkist is made for you. You'll get the key points of a book in just minutes. So with its audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish a book during your commute or on your lunch break or while you're exercising. And 12 million people are using Blinkist right now. And it has a massive and growing library from politics to current events to history books and even topics like business and health. Blinkist has the latest titles from bestsellers lists, as well as the classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read but never had time to or were supposed to read in high school. I know you just started using it, Joe, but you've had a great experience so far, it sounds like. Yeah, I was writing a column for CNN, and I was talking about a book I had read several years ago, and I frankly didn't have time to reread it. So I just went to Blinkist and in 15 minutes had all the key takeaways. So from Michelle Obama's Becoming to Russian Roulette by Michael Isakoff and David Korn to Rick Wilson's Everything Trump Touches Dies, with Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want and all for one low price. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash words matter. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash words matter to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also get 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash words matter. And on the topic of the U.S. response and how it plans to handle what has been called an inevitable outbreak of coronavirus within the United States, the the president has decided to appoint Mike Pence as kind of the point person who will lead the U.S. coronavirus response. What are your thoughts on that? It's a very odd choice. And, And I do understand that you don't necessarily need a top scientist to run point on this. I referenced uh, Ron Klain and the, the great job he did on Ebola. But Pence is, by almost any measure, the worst possible choice. He is a Trump loyalist. He has made clear through his stone-faced silence over the last three years, he will do anything it, it takes to stay on the ticket, to continue his path towards running for president in 2024, and to never publicly or privately 
put any distance between him and the president. So there's no independence there. Secondly, there are scientific issues involved here. There are public health issues involved here. And Pence has a horrible record. Pence does not believe in climate science. He believes that climate change is a hoax. Pence has a very poor record on public health in Indiana. There was an outbreak of AIDS, the AIDS virus, in Indiana that he wouldn't deal with because he didn't see the science of it. He just saw the morality of it, and it caused a very serious public health problem uh, in his state. He doesn't think that smoking causes cancer. So I, I, I hope you're, you're getting my drift here, Katie. He's a science denier and a Trump loyalist. The two worst things you could have running this effort that should be driven by objective science and non-Trump interested decision makers, people who know what public health issues are, they know how a pandemic like this can impact people, and you do everything, everything to promote and protect the safety of all Americans. And also, as we've started to see the beginnings of the U.S. response and how they're at least handling the messaging right now, uh, you mentioned the press conference last week that President Trump held where he really downplayed the effects and the fears of a coronavirus spread in the U.S. And this is not really one of those situations where you necessarily want to under promise, and you could kind of give mixed messages to the American public. So uh, what's your perspective on kind of the messaging so far uh, in something that, again, has been called inevitable? I think the messaging has been terrible. And I think I know the reason, but let me do this in order. What you really want to do in this situation, you, you want to do everything to protect the public health uh, of the country. But this this is a political situation, like everything the president has to deal with. And a conventional politician, a responsible politician, would make all the decisions based on the facts, but then present it in a way where he builds confidence and support from the American people. And again, the traditional way to do that is to lay out all of the possibilities, including those that could be the worst possible scenario, and demonstrate that you have a plan to deal with it. So say, this could be bad. What, what would that look like? And here's what our response will be. And then do the work. The reason you want to make sure that all of that's out there is you don't want the public surprised. And politically, you want to under-promise and over-deliver. You want to be able to, six to nine months from now, which, by the way, is there is an election coming up, to say, this could have been a lot worse if not for our very strong response and the response of science and under my leadership as President Trump, I saved us from you know something that was much worse. Trump has done the exact opposite. He is so narrowly focused on not having a political problem with a slowing economy, with an economy that's infected with the virus, literally, and a stock market that's consistently falling as a leading indicator of you know what's to come and as an emotional and financial for people who are invested impact of the coronavirus. Uh, he's so caught up in that. He, and in the short term of there's nothing to see here, there's nothing to worry about, this isn't inevitable. I mean, you had this stunning moment in last week's press conference where the president got up and said, 
It's not inevitable. The cases are going down. We've dealt with it perfectly. Wink, wink. This is going away. Come on, economy. Come on, stock market. And then you had the experts get up as soon as the the political hacks were finished and very politely and very subtly and with a smile saying the president's full of shit. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, Fauci gave a master class in how to put together facts that didn't seem offensive or contradicting Trump, which contradicted everything that Trump said. And the same with the CDC. So I think they have set themselves up in trying to avert a short-term issue of the next weeks or month and have created a much bigger risk for themselves in looking like they were unprepared and looking like they didn't understand the risk to the public. I mentioned earlier Katrina. One of the things that the Bush administration got in trouble for was their initial response was ineffective. And rather than saying our initial response was ineffective, we've tripled the resources. They went through a period where they tried to downplay what was happening and saying, it isn't as bad as you're being told. Don't believe what you see. Unfortunately, we were seeing it. We were seeing people on rooftops. We were seeing people in the Superdome. We were seeing devastation in front of our eyes. And that strategy quickly fell apart unto itself because it wasn't sustainable. The only caveat I have to this time being different is, first off, we don't have the shock of a hurricane coming in and the visual devastation, but we certainly have the fear that I think is felt in the public with a pandemic, is the president has a control of significant uh, news gathering and broadcast and radio and print. If Fox News says this isn't a problem, there's a good portion of the country that's going to say it's not a problem. And if people are getting sick and people are dying, and if Fox News says it's Chuck Schumer's fault and Nancy Pelosi's fault, there's a large part of the population that's going to believe it's Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi's fault. If I'm a political better, I'm not going to bet Trump wins this, but he he does have some assets. But getting back to the original point, just like Bush did with Katrina, he set himself up for failure. He has set himself up for being too myopic on today and tomorrow and not worrying about the longer term and looking like he will own every piece of the political problem that comes along with not being prepared for a crisis like this. And the reality is in government, you see this with FEMA all the time. There are some things that you can be completely prepared for that overwhelm the preparation. You pay the price for that. There's in local politics, if you're a mayor, if you don't get the snow off the street quick enough, it doesn't matter how many kids you've educated and it doesn't matter what great health care you've brought to the community. You can't get the snow off the ground. If you're underprepared and you have said this is not a problem, don't worry about this, and then the, it doesn't turn out that well. Politically, I think the, the result is just as devastating. I think there will be a multifaceted impact on the American public, both the election, on the stock market. We saw reporting last week, NBC News saying that this was the biggest drop in the stock market since the 2008 financial crisis. We also saw reporting that Secretary Azar was refusing to promise that a coronavirus vaccine will be affordable to every American. 
And so I think both on a personal and an electoral level, both health and finances, we will see a huge impact of this virus in how the White House handles it and in how America really feels the effects. Yeah. I mean, listen, neither of us are scientists, so we, we're not going to get into how how this virus spreads and what the mortality rates are of that. We have to trust uh, the experts, and I hope Trump learns how to do that. But we do know how a political virus can spread, and it's not based on the facts. It is based on perceptions, feelings, fear, anxiety. And we are reaching the point, and the stock market seems to be driving it, where this has become a major, if not the worst, crisis of the Trump administration. I, I read in the last couple of days, and I can't remember who, but I thought it was really smart, that this is the first crisis that Trump has had to face that he didn't create. And that's true. And that makes it that much harder because it's out of his control. And I think we have we are very close to a tipping point on this being something that Trump won't be able to solve, that he'll only be able to triage and put his finger in the dam, trying to keep this thing from overwhelming him politically. And these things happen fast. There's generally no warning. But all of the ingredients of Trump stripping the government of expertise, of people who get paid to deal with these sorts of things, and having everyone serve him and his political agenda as opposed to the public's agenda is really, really going to come home. The one thing that the Washington and mainstream media is very good at is dissecting and diagnosing whose fault it is. And I think we're going to see a whole lot of coverage of things that we've kind of known were already there, put together in a very toxic cocktail uh, for the president on just what the impact is when the president's not a serious person, is not a policy person who doesn't read, who doesn't listen to briefings, who doesn't believe in intel. He only believes in his gut. And I think we're going to see a pile on very quickly on the president at the worst possible time for him in a re-election year. Another point I wanted to ask about is a bit more inside baseball of what's going on in the administration and particularly in the White House. So last week it was reported that the Trump administration is conducting this so-called purge of government employees that they deem disloyal or not sufficiently loyal. And Axios reported that the administration has a, quote, deep state hit list and that the purge will be carried out by the new head of the presidential personnel office, Johnny McEntee. So it's important to note that the White House definitely indicated last week that this will apply to the 4,000 political appointees, but it will also apply to the millions of career civil servants who work throughout the government. So how is this different from, from your perspective and your experience? How is this different from what other administrations have done? Well, it's very different. I think in previous administrations, certainly the one I worked in, there was a very bright line drawn between the career civil servants who had been there for a while and who were nonpartisan. That doesn't mean they didn't have opinions and they didn't have political opinions and they didn't have policy agendas, but they were the experts. They were the people who were going to be there long after you were gone. And they were not targeted in any political sense as far as trying to keep the the wheels of government turning. And the political appointees, they were people that you appointed. So you had some sense that 
they shared a vision with you, but there was no litmus test and there was no witch hunt to find uh, people who said bad things about the president or who were not sufficiently loyal. So all of that is something that we haven't seen in a long time. We've seen it before. Remember Richard Nixon in the 60s was very upset with the way the Labor Department was reporting out economic statistics. So he asked several of his people to develop a list of the Jews in the Labor Department. And several people resigned because they understood how dangerous that was. Now he did find someone to do it and he had his list and he had his enemies list. And we all know how the Nixon presidency ended up. Sort of tying the the, the first two subjects together, there was a pandemic expert who worked at the White House assigned to the National Security Council. That person was fired when John Bolton came in because John Bolton only wanted John Bolton's people at the NSC. So he fired a bunch of people because he didn't think those people were sufficiently loyal or loyal to him. He never hired anybody to replace the the pandemic advisor. Kind of stands to reason that it probably be a good thing if we had that person in place three, six months ago as this story developed. It's much more dangerous, though, when you look at the broader picture. The White House Deputy Press Secretary Hogan Gidley was quoted this week as saying, that we know that there are disloyal people to the president and the government. We're going to find them, and we're going to take appropriate action against them. That is a a staggeringly dangerous comment, that we're going to apply loyalty tests to both career and political appointees. We're going to come find you, and we're going to deal with you. You don't have to be um, a historian to recognize those phrases. They, they come from 1930s Germany. They come from um, Hitler and Joseph Goebbels of going in and rooting out and purging people in the government. It's not what America's about. It's never been what America's about. Even the worst, even the worst of Nixon didn't give us that. Somehow, uh, have gotten so numb to the words that come out of the White House that people haven't quite woken up to how serious that is. If you look at all of the things that Trump and his political advisors have done, this is one of the most dangerous. This is taking people out of the government who have expertise, uh, who have experience, who know how to solve the problems that the world throws into our lap as the most powerful nation in the world, and getting rid of those people because they're not loyal to the president. Our government is not a mob family. It's not a criminal enterprise. It's what we trust every day to keep the public safe, to keep all of us healthy, to make sure that we, we all can prosper in the economy. And what we're getting is a crime family. And also last week, perhaps in the same vein, President Trump continued his war with the judicial branch. So in addition to his tweets about Roger Stone's sentencing, he called for two Supreme Court justices to recuse themselves from deciding on cases involving his administration and agenda. And obviously those two justices were not Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. So is there a political calculation behind this latest assault? Is attacking the judiciary popular with Trump's base? Or is there something else going on here? Well, it's always hard to tell with Trump whether there is a strategy or whether it's just his paranoia and pursuit of his own self-interest. 
attack on the judiciary and to attack on the other branches of government is nothing new. We've all been through the last 18 months of his attack on Congress and their ability to do their job, their ability to provide oversight of the executive branch. We've seen it through his attacks on the Justice Department, uh, first with Jeff Sessions and then attacking the Mueller effort and then finally settling with Bill Barr, who uh, gives the president what he wants which is not judicial independence. We also saw in the last week or two the president getting involved in very particular cases and encouraging or forcing the Justice Department to change a recommendation on the Roger Stone sentencing. I mean, it was unheard of, bizarre, whatever description you want, but the Justice Department went into court with two different sentencing recommendations, one the president liked and one the career prosecutors liked. Uh, thankfully, the judge did what the judge thought was right and didn't pay that much attention to the political back and forth in her recommendation for the sentencing. But it is, as Bill Barr said, it makes the attorney general's job impossible. Now, I think Bill Barr is being disingenuous there because he's doing exactly what he wants to do, which is exactly what the president wants to do. And if I was wrong with that, he would have resigned by now, which is what he told friends. If it, if it ever got too hard, he would resign. He told the president, stop interfering. And what did the president do? He doubled down on interfering. The Supreme Court stuff is hard to figure out beyond the president doesn't know a lot. And he uh, watches a lot of Fox News and reads a bunch of fringe publications. Uh, because I think, as I try to put this back together... A lot of this comes from something that Justice Sotomayor said about the White House and the Supreme Court inappropriately giving preference to the executive branch as far as what cases they held up and what cases they took and the machinations that go on at the Supreme Court. And Trump read something or saw something on Fox and immediately decided that none of the liberals on the court he singled out. Ginsburg and Sotomayor, but I think it was a shot across the bow of all of them, that all those people should recuse themselves because the court, like the Congress and like the entire government, is there to serve Trump, not the American people, not the Constitution. You can apply this to almost anything that Trump does. If you're looking for a strategy or a motive or why did he do that or why did he say that, the answer is almost always, if not always, because it serves his own purposes. And finally, last week, we saw the acting director of national intelligence dismissed over a briefing he gave to Congress on Russia's involvement in the 2020 election. So, Joe, talk about the latest on Russia and the race for the White House. It's funny because all of these issues tie together that we've been talking about here and it's the perversion of government to serve the people to a government to serve Donald Trump and his own personal interests. The director of national intelligence, McGuire, was in the job. People remember him from the beginning of the Intel Committee hearings on looking at uh, whether we should move forward with impeachment because he was involved in some unorthodox handling of the whistleblower's original complaint. But by all accounts, uh, McGuire was a lifelong intelligence officer that had respect on both sides of the aisle. 
But in this White House and in this government, any slight of the president, any attempt to do your job the way it's supposed to be done uh, is dealt with severely. Uh, McGuire, again, by all accounts, wanted to continue in the job and be appointed as the permanent director of national intelligence as opposed to the acting. But he ran afoul of the president by sending one of his deputies to Capitol Hill to brief them on the current assessment of what Russia was doing uh, as far as the 2020 election. Now, take a step back. We've spent three years since the president was elected talking about Russia, talking about Russia's influence and what impact they had on the last election. Everyone in the country, except for Donald Trump and the viewers of Fox, understand that Russia interfered. We've never been able to quite sort through what quantitative impact they had, but we certainly know they had a qualitative impact on the debate and on Hillary Clinton's campaign in particular. It's only Trump right now at a senior level who's arguing that I take Vladimir Putin's word, they didn't do anything in the election and that he was legitimately elected. We just, there, it's, there are some things that we will never know uh, for certain, but we know for certain that Russia did influence our elections. They did try to disrupt our elections and they are still doing it. And we haven't done anything about it. And it, which raises questions about the president's motives. It's a logical question when the president and Mitch McConnell refused to pass an election security law to say, do you think you benefit from uh, what we're allowing Russia to get away with? So anyway, the, you know, this deputy went up to Capitol Hill and told members of Congress who are intensely interested in this issue, both Democrats and Republicans, and detailed what Russia is still doing. In that briefing, uh, they were told that Russia is still doing things to help promote uh, Donald Trump as a way of sowing division in America. They also said that they're doing things that look like they help Bernie Sanders. So lots of controversy here. What the president's response was, well, I can't have that. I can't have facts and intelligence get in the way of my political and personal agenda. So he fires the chief intelligence officer for the U.S., and he brings in someone who not only doesn't have any intelligence experience, Ambassador Grinnell, I, I, the only reason he's crossed my radar is he trolls me on Twitter. Now, you would think the ambassador to Germany uh, would have more time and more important things to do than to troll me, but he doesn't because he's a frequent commentator on things that I say and do, which makes him you know, boring, if, not, if nothing else. But Grinnell has no experience and, in fact, has some uh, experience in some of this sort of dark arts of political campaigning that have connections to Russia and all that. So the worst possible nominee to head the top intelligence office. But to Trump, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The intelligence apparatus that we spend hundreds of billions of dollars a year on is not designed to gather intel to keep America safe. It's designed to make sure that Donald Trump is protected and Donald Trump is promoted. That's really the single thread that runs through all of this, this sort of pervasive corruption and corrupting of government for the purpose of promoting your own interests, enriching yourself, destroying your political opponents, promoting those people who are loyal to you. Again, it is a perversion of... 240 years of American history, but it's what we have in Donald Trump. All right, Joe. Well, as always, it's good to hear your thoughts about the happenings in D.C. and around the world as the case is with coronavirus right now. 
Thanks to our listeners for joining us. Until next week. Thanks, Katie. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. 